Samuel chapter number 22. 1 Samuel chapter number 22. And uh, while you're turning, let me just uh, remind you that this coming Sunday night is our annual pie and praise service. And it is just that. It is a service dedicated to praising the Lord for testimonies, things that He's done for us in the past year. And so we'll be taking testimonies on Sunday night. We are doing this a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Uh, Traditionally, we've passed the microphone around and uh, we are trying to avoid that and say, Pastor, why are we doing that? Why don't we want to hear uh, the testimonies, that kind of thing? It's not that. The last couple years, our services have gone over two hours. And if there's one group in the church that you don't want mad at you, it's those who work the nursery. And so uh, the last couple years, we've heard feedback from our nursery workers. Hey, Pastor, is there anything that you can do to help us? Uh, save us, please. Uh, but um, we are trying to do that this year and trying to be more cognizant of time. And so if you would like to share a testimony, maybe God's done something for you in the past year, uh, that is praise, something that would uh, maybe encourage somebody else. It's a praise that has happened to you. Uh, it could be a job change, or it could be a job cancellation, or it could be uh, something going on in your family. We want to hear that, and we want you to share that. Uh, if you'll let us know, we'll be in the lobby right after service. If you'll let us know, we'll put your name down. Uh, we're just kind of asking people to sign up for that. And that will help us to be able to kind of navigate through the service and hopefully be a blessing this year to our Sunday school workers or our nursery workers. Uh, and hopefully they'll love us after Sunday night. That would be a blessing. And then right after the service, we're going to head back to the gymnasium and have some pie. And uh, I've already seen the pie list, and you do not want to miss Sunday night uh, for the praise and the pie. So uh, make sure that you're here uh, Sunday night. It's going to be a great time uh, together. And if you missed this past Sunday evening uh, with Pastor Kurt Skelly, Brother Kurt preached an amazing message uh, this past Sunday night on uh, when God doesn't show up in the nick of time. And uh, if you missed that, you can go online, go on YouTube or podcast it and uh, listen to that message. It was a great help and encouragement for me. And so I hope that it will be the same for you. First Samuel chapter 22, uh, we're going to finish this chapter tonight. But as we enter back in the life of David, the last time we saw David, uh, he was running. Remember, he was in Gath at the end of chapter number 21, hometown of Goliath. He's acting like a madman. Uh, we saw that, uh, trying to convince those around him. He's lost his mind. He's working, all these different things. And it, it's pretty much effective, the fact that he has uh, convinced everybody that he's a madman. And we talked last week in chapter uh, 21 how he goes to Ahimelech, the priest, and uh, in this place called Nob. Nob, and we'll see a map in just a moment. But we talked about how often we portray ourselves to be something that we're not. And then we talked about how uh, we're one way around other people. And then uh, sometimes we, in, in that uh, sense, uh, because we are portraying ourselves to be something else, uh, we fall in line and we become that person. We talked about the fact that it is possible for us to feel more comfortable around those who are lost and those more who are uh, not living for the Lord. And it's easier for us to blend in with that crowd than it is uh, the Lord's crowd. And we leave that thought with uh, David. He's moving again, only this time he's not alone very long. And if you're writing notes, you can write down number one, the leader that's mentioned here in uh, chapter 22 and verse number one. Uh, let's read the first five verses just for context tonight. It says in verse number 1, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. Now, this cave will be a hiding place for David. We'll see in a couple chapters, but a very significant place. But escaped to the cave Adullam. 
And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So get this in your mind. David is in a cave in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden his family shows up and 400 other people show up. This is not just a family reunion. This is a group gathering. Okay, uh, So we see in verse number 4, and what uh, verse 3, And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab, and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold, or he was in hiding. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee in the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Herod, the leader. Adullam was a town about 10 miles south of Gath on the border of Judah. We'll have the map that we used last week on the screen for you. At this point in the storyline, you see Gath up on the left-hand side of the screen and Abdullam right underneath Judah, the big word Judah there, uh, 10 miles away from Gath, 10 miles away from the enemy. And at this point in the storyline, six different times in the scripture we've seen David escaped from Saul. Escape from, escape from, over and over and over. Just literally right out of Saul's grasp as he's running. But in verse number 1 of chapter 22, it says that he escaped to. He was going to. The first reference, first six references, I'm just trying to get out of here. I'm trying to get out of Dodge so I can get away from Saul. But now he has a place that he's going to. He's escaping to a place, a very specific place. But when he arrives at the cave, word reaches back to his family. We don't know how that happened. If they were looking for him, David sent a messenger. Somehow, word got back home to Bethlehem that David was in this cave. What's interesting is the fact the last time we saw David's family, you would imagine that none of his family would have showed up. Because we see in chapter 17, remember the last time David saw his brothers, Eliab, the oldest, really was blessing David out. In chapter 17, verse 28, it says, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Something drastic has happened in this time that's elapsed since then. Something. Now, it could be that David is no longer that teenager. David's grown up. David is now the warrior. He's one of Saul's mighty men. He's one of his commanders. Maybe time has changed the family's heart. Maybe something has happened in their family dynamic. Maybe uh, they've experienced what it's like for David not to be there and say, hey, you know, uh, parting is such sweet sorrow. You know, we, we know what it's like for him not to be here. We want him to be back reunited with us. But something has happened. And for us, it's easy for us to look at our situations and circumstances in the moment and think and even believe, you know, because this is the way it is, that's always the way it will be. The way that it is right now, it's never going to change. My job situation is never going to change. My family dynamics never going to change. Uh, my uh, future plans are never going to change. It's always going to be bad and nothing is ever going to change. But that's not what happened in David's life. David's family all reunites together. Something happened. 
And while we might think that nothing will happen in our situation, we don't know that, do we? We don't know that for certain. We might think that our job situation won't change and our family dynamic won't change, but time has a way of changing not just things, time has a way of changing people. It has a way of changing the dynamic even when we don't expect it to. But they weren't the only ones who come to David. It says in verse number 2, everyone that was in distress. Those are people who are troubled by what's going on. Maybe they're upset at what Saul's doing, how he's leading. Then it says everyone that was in debt. Wow, we'll just skip over that one. Uh, And everyone that was discontented. Hey, they're not pleased. Gathered themselves to him. You remember when Samuel told the people about Saul and what would happen to their sons and their daughters and how they would be put into the employment of King Saul. And Saul would come in and he would take their fields and he would take their sons and make them servants and soldiers. All of that happened and there was a feeling of, we don't like this. And that is on display here in verse number 2. What Samuel said would happen, did happen. And these people are not happy, so therefore they say, hey, look, let's find David. Let's find that guy who at one time was Saul's choice warrior, and let's go after him. Let's find him, and let's take comfort in him. He was a captain to them. He was a leader. He was someone that they were encouraged by. But in this story, if you look at David's life, David sees himself as a failure. Isn't it neat to see that when we see ourselves as failures at times, other people see us as a Savior? We look at ourselves and what we've been through and say, man, there is no way that I could ever be an encouragement or a blessing to anybody. And yet people come to us and say, hey, will you pray for me? You know, I I know that you do that church thing, and while that's not me, and I don't really believe in that Jesus stuff, but, you know, I've just got this need, and I've got this prayer request. Will will you pray for me? And while we might think that nobody, we have no impact outside of these four walls, and that we're nothing more than a spiritual nobody, there are other people who come to us as a somebody. Don't ever underestimate the influence that you have in the lives of people. The fact that we play a vital role. You know, how do you see yourself in comparison to how others see you? We think about David's life and he was the one who needed the encouragement and yet people were coming to him for encouragement. My life's a mess, Pastor, and you know, I don't know what people see in me. They see something shining in you and it's called Jesus. They look at their life compared to your life and say, man, my life is a mess. And I know their life is a mess, but at the same time, their life is not a mess like my life. So they come to you for help. They come for you for encouragement and hope. And maybe your life appears to be a mess so that you can help other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. I love the verse. We say it all the time. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Now, isn't that an awesome verse? The fact that we know that God wants to comfort us in our times of hurt. But the verse doesn't stop there. Excuse me, the context of the verse doesn't stop there. Let's look at the next verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. God comforts us. Why? Verse 4. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we 
may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Pastor, why does God comfort me? Why is he the God of all comfort? Why does he encourage me when I'm hurting? So that you can take what has been shared with you and you can share it with someone else. That's why. God comforts us so that we in turn can comfort someone else the same way that we've been comforted. You ever been in a situation talking to somebody and they say something like, you know, my life is just a mess. Or I don't know how I'm going to get through this next week. Or man, the holidays are coming and you know, Uncle Phil is coming. And I don't know how I'm going to deal with Uncle Phil. And something that you've read or a message that you've heard or something that you've been through, you can share with them and it resonates with them. Why do you think God does that for you? So that you can have in those moments something to help someone else. But, but let's rewind the film for just a minute. You wouldn't have those moments to share those moments if you hadn't gone through hurt yourself. Pastor, why am I going through this? Why am I hurting like this? Why is this is not fair? But you got to look ahead to see the end result of what God's going to do with it. To be encouraged. Uh, Pastor, that's not fair. Hey, life's not fair. But the fact that I'm going through something, God is planning my hurt. Thank you, Lord. God is planning my hurt to be a great help. God is planning my trouble that I'm experiencing to be a triumph for somebody else. He uses the things that hurt us and how life hurts us to be a help. And when those seasons come and say, man, I don't even know why I went through that. We need to be looking for the person who can get help from what we've experienced. Because God does not waste trials on anybody. He doesn't. Think about John MacArthur said, those who experience the most suffering will receive the most comfort. And those who receive the most comfort are thereby most richly equipped to comfort others. God gives us those hurts, those times of hurt, to be a time of healing to somebody else. And these men were willing to abandon everything that they had known to go and stay with this guy in a cave. You think about this. They're, they're in a time of desperation. And we're willing to go and follow this guy who's living on the run. Things must have been bad in Israel at that time. But they leave and all they knew was we're just going to follow David. Times are hard, times are difficult, but I'm willing to leave everything behind to follow David. Do you realize when we come to Jesus, our personal Savior, we're called to leave everything else behind to follow the son of David? Not following David, we're called to follow the son of David in Jesus Christ. He was the leader. But then number two tonight in verse 6 through 12, we see that there is a loser in this. Verse 6, when Saul heard that David was discovered, 
And the men that were with him now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear ye, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of David. There is none of you that sorry for me, and showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant to get me to lie at wait at this day. Now I think about every time I read this passage of scripture, I think about Charlie Brown's parents. Yes, That's what Saul's doing. Blah, 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 blah. You know what Saul's doing? He's in the middle of a pity party in the eyes of everybody. And his desperation is disgusting. The fact of where he is. While David is seeing the Lord work all around him and bringing all these people to encourage him and he's going to encourage them, Saul is in the middle of a pity party. Saul is all these trying to things. He's trying to make things happen to appease himself. What's interesting is that David goes down. This is just a nugget. David goes down to Moab and drops off his parents. Now Moab, traditionally, they were the enemy of the children of Israel. How does David have the connection to go down to Moab and waltz into Moab and drop off his mom and dad and say, hey, king, will you take care of my mom and dad? And the king agrees. How in the world does that happen? Was there any kind of, is there anybody in the Bible that we know that's connected to David that would agree to some kind of this handoff? If you read the story of Ruth, you know the connection to David. Ruth was David's great-grandma. And so David shows up in Moab as the great-grandson of somebody that they deeply respected. Somebody that they knew. And now he says, hey, my great-grandma's from here. Uh, can I leave my mom and dad? And the king agrees. Hey, you got a family tie? Absolutely. We'll take your parents. Long before David ever shows up with his mom and dad, God already prepared the way. Just, that's just a free nugget, but uh, you can search that out later. Brother Mike will probably preach a great message about that. Uh, but while David is doing all this stuff, he is in hiding. Saul is complaining that nobody is helping him. His accusations against his men. Hey, how come nobody told me where David was? How come nobody told me that my son is, uh, has an alliance with David? How come nobody is bringing David here so that I can kill him? All of this stuff. But in his accusation, it inspires one man to speak up. Now, we've seen the man before. We saw him last week. in our past, Or two weeks ago in our passage in chapter number 21. This man named Doeg. Doeg. And what here is kind of surprising to me, Saul is accusing everybody he can in this moment of desperation. And when we get desperate, we start accusing those who are closest to us of working against us. All these men were loyal to Saul. They're not in a cave with David. They're loyal to Saul. 
Jonathan was loyal to Saul and David. Hey, he's my dad. I'm going to look out for you, but I'm still going to go and I'm going to be there with dad. I'm loyal. When Jonathan dies in chapter 28, who does he die alongside? He doesn't die alongside David. He dies alongside Saul. He was loyal. Yet Saul is in this moment of desperation. And when we're desperate, we lash out at those we're closest to and accuse them of working against us. Say, Pastor, that never happens. How about Adam and Eve? When God said, did you eat of the fruit? And what did, what did Adam say? The woman that you gave me, did you eat of the fruit, Eve? The serpent, in a moment of desperation, we lash out. How about Abraham? And these are just a couple illustrations. Abraham. Remember when Abraham lied and said that Sarah was his sister? That was partly true, but it was partly a lie. Especially when the king got the dream and said, Hey, if you touch her or any of your men touch her, you're all going to die. And he meets with Abraham and says, what have you done to us? What are, you, what are you trying to do? How did you lie to us? And Abraham said, well, he says in Genesis 20 verse 11, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. I thought you guys were just all a bunch of heathens, which didn't go over very well. How about Peter and John in John chapter 21 verse 21? When God says, Hey, you feed my sheep, feed my lambs, Peter. And what does Peter do? He lashes out at John. Hey, Lord, what about him? What's he going to do? Trying to deflect, trying to get all the attention on somebody else over and over. We get desperate and we lash out, taking the attention and focus off of us and try and put it on somebody else. Pay attention to them, not me. Angus Buckins said, If you allow one little sin to creep into your life and think it doesn't matter, it will grow and grow until it affects your whole spiritual life, deflecting you from your primary aim of serving God. Deflecting. Deflecting. Doeg steps up and says, Hey, I saw David with Ahimelech. I saw him. King Saul. Saul calls for Ahimelech here in these verses. Verse number 11, then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. He says, hey, Ahimelech, I need to see you, and when you come, bring your entire family. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound promising, does it? What would you think if you were Ahimelech? We see the leader and the loser, and then number three, we see the legacy. Verse 13, finally... Ahimelech shows up. Saul says unto him, Why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse? Hey, why have you and David committed an act of treason against me, Ahimelech? Saul starts asking all these questions. Why would you talk to him? Why would you feed him? Why would you weaponize him? Why would you do all these things? Why did you uh, consult God on his behalf? Why did you do all these things? And Ahimelech's answer was true, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Look at verse number, uh, let's look at verse number 14. Then Himelech answered and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David? Hey, king, 
I'm not trying to get into your business, but can you mention one of your followers who's more faithful than David? And you remember, what did David say when he, remember he lies to Ahimelech? He says, I'm on an errand for Saul. So Ahimelech is trying to convince Saul to no avail that, hey, he told me all this, that he was working for you, he's trying to serve you, and why wouldn't I help him if he's, if he's on your side and he's trying to help you and he's been loyal to you? Now Saul and Ahimelech had two different outlooks. One was looking out for himself and the other was simply leaving it in the hands of the Lord. Hey, I, I don't know what to tell you, Saul. I'm just doing my job. I'm doing exactly what God has put me in this place to do. Verse 15, did I then begin to acquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. I don't know what's going on in him. Let, I just know that he's served you all this time. He's been faithful. He's been loyal. He gave me no reason to doubt that. And I helped him. Think about Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 33 through 35, If you do good to them that do good to you, what thank have you? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you have hope to receive, what thank have you? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good to them. And do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and the evil. Ahimelech is simply saying, Hey, I'm I'm just trying to be a friend to somebody who's a friend to us. That's all I'm doing. Just like we're told to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. We're told to be the hands and feet of Jesus and leave the results up to him. Remember Romans chapter 12 and verse number 9, where Paul said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It's not our job to take matters into our own hands. It's our job to simply be faithful to the Lord. Not worry about the end result. Leave that to His hands. But how often do I feel like God needs my help? Hey, I want to do this over here. I'm not going to bother God with this over here. I can handle this. That's dangerous ground, by the way. When we think that God somehow needs our help so we get in the middle of what God may not be trying to do and we try and force God's hand by helping him, Ahimelech wasn't guilty. But as far as Saul was concerned, he's getting ready to die. Verse number 16, the king says, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. Hey, you know the reason I brought you and your family here? You're all getting ready to die. That's why. He lets him have it. And when you think about what Saul was seeing, his perspective, everything was being viewed through a lens that David was getting all these people to rally against Saul. But Saul's perspective was outright wrong. I wrote this down. When you and I have a flawed perspective... It doesn't matter if what we see in front of us is the truth. We can't see it clearly. Is the situation wrong or is your perspective wrong? How many times have you been at work and you have assumed something was one way and as time went on you found out that your assumption was wrong? How many times at church... Have we assumed that something was one way 
And as time goes on, we find out that our assumption is wrong. We've all been there. We've all lashed out at people and found out later that, oh yeah, I kind of need to apologize for that. We've all been there. We've all done that. At work, at home, at church. We've probably done it a a multitude of times at each place. You know, they didn't shake my hand. They must not like me anymore. They didn't talk to me in Sunday school class or growth group or Sunday morning service, so they must hate me and not want to ever be my friend again. We assume. But what do we do when our perspective is wrong? We're looking through a darkened lens trying to see clearly, and it just doesn't work. We need heaven's perspective, not our own. This is in your notes. When you hear negative things being whispered in your ear, that's not coming from heaven. It's coming from hell. When you hear negative things being whispered in your ear. You know, that doesn't always have to be in the form of a person. That could be something you read in a text message. Uh, Let me just time out here. Our team knows this here at church, and I am adamant about this. We've had multiple conversations. You should never, ever, 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 a thousand times, ever, do conflict resolution via text message. Never. Well, pastor, I can't get them on the phone. You don't send that text message. Well, pastor, they won't meet with me. You don't send that text message. Ever. Say, pastor, why not? Because you and I both know that a text message can be misinterpreted. Well, what did they, I know what they said, but what did they mean? We've been there. And then they fire off something back and it's like, how did they get that? But man, that gets our juices going. Oh, if that's what they think, oh, I'm hunting. And the war is on. We don't ever settle conflict with a text message. Uh, you remember Matthew chapter 18, it was pretty clear how we handle conflict. You go to that person. Him and him alone. That's pretty blunt. That's not a text message or an email or a Facebook message. Or an Instagram, and there's a great book you can read and look it up, uh, Before You Hit Send. It talks about the four different rules that you follow before you hit send, before you send something, before you uh, type something. Ask these four different questions. It's uh, what is pure, if it's right, if, uh, it's four different questions. But it causes us to, before I hit send, I'm going to ask these questions. And if no is the answer for any of these four questions, I'm going to delete everything and I'm not sending that message. Before you hit send. Uh, we could say that in church before you open our mouth and speak. I need to ask those questions. Now, Philippians chapter 4, whatsoever things are honest, true, of good report, there be any virtue, there be any praise, think on these things. It's amazing the things we think about, that's what comes out of our mouth. And if my thoughts aren't what they should be, and I'm hearing whispers in my ear that's negative about somebody, That's not coming from heaven. It's coming from hell. Whether it's someone who's speaking to me, sending me a message. If it's not positive, encouraging, uplifting, not trying to grab it from the radio station, but if it's not encouraging, it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.29, 
Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearer. Are the things that you say, the things that you send, the things that you type, are they ministering grace? Well, brother, I, I hope you know that I love you, so no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about grace, graciousness. There's a leader. David was the leader that everybody sought after. There was a loser, Saul. Man, Saul's just making it even worse. The legacy of Ahimelech was, hey, there's nobody as faithful as David. But then we see the loyalty. Look at verse number 17. For a moment, it appears that these men who are in the camp are going to save all these priests. Look at verse 17. And the king said unto the footmen that stood around about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. All right, guys, go over there and kill all the priests that God has ordained that nobody should ever touch them. You go kill them. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm-mm. What do the servants do? Uh, no, we're not going to do that. All, look at this, verse number 17. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. I sure am glad that there are still a few people that say, you know what, right is right and wrong is wrong. And we're not going to do wrong even if you want us to. There are still a few handful of people that don't care what the boss says, that don't care what their family says, but right is still right. And no matter what the world says, right is still right. And life is still life. Moving on. This is what can happen when everybody's on the same page. Life can be spared. Saul is clearly insane at this point. Does not care who he kills. And these servants had more character than the king did. They said no. But there is one man who showed his loyalty. Look at verse 18. And the king said to, who's that guy? Doeg. Remember that guy? The guy who was present in chapter 21. The guy who said, oh yeah, king, I saw David. Now he says in verse number 18, the king says to Doeg, turn thou and fall upon the priest. Hey, if nobody else will serve me, Doeg, why don't you do it? The thing that I find surprising is verse number 18. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and he fell upon the priest. No hesitation. No ethics, no moral character. He, yes, sir, whatever you say. And this one man didn't care what was right. He was going to follow the leader. His loyalty to Saul was unquestionable. He was locked in, even if it meant doing wrong. So here's the point. When the choice is between following the Lord and whatever the leadership wants to do, there is only one choice that the right, that's the right choice. We follow God. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Remember, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Hey, didn't we tell you you're not supposed to talk about that God, Jesus? Yeah, we heard you. We're just not going to obey you. Because we should obey God first. Man second. Remember Joseph? Joseph is one of my favorite people in the Bible. Genesis 39, verse 9. Remember when 
Potiphar's wife came and says, hey, she was kind of subtle about it. Hey, come and lie with me. That was subtle. There was no, hey, you want to go to dinner and a movie? You, you know, it was, let's get to the point. And David said, or excuse me, Joseph said, there's none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything for me but thee, talking about Potiphar, his boss, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph said, God is the only one who will know, and that is enough to keep me from sin. Nobody else will find out, but God will know. And that's enough to say no. You know, there might be a time when you have to choose whether you follow the Lord or follow the leader. Which will you choose? I would hope that you would never have to make that decision in this building. You know, if pastor says this one thing, but God's word says something else. We got a choice to make. That should be an easy choice. I need to be looking for another job. And I have no apology for that. Hey, if there ever comes time and I lose it in the pulpit and I start saying something that's anti this book, I give you permission to find another pastor. Because I want to be right by this book. And I want this church to be right by this book. If it comes down to it between me and the Lord, we should say we follow him. Not him. Him. Follow him. Doeg kills 85 priests. And then takes it a step farther. Look at verse 19 quickly. And Nob talks about how he has killed all these priests in verse 18. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword. Doeg takes it one step further and kills every one of the priests and then kills everybody in town in Nob. He couldn't leave any witnesses. He couldn't leave anybody to tell the story. He kills men, women, children, babies, everybody. And all the animals. Verse 19. Just because you think it's covered when we sin, somebody always knows the truth though. Which is found in the last point, the leaving. Look at verse 20. And one of the sons... We don't know how many sons Ahimelech had, but one of the sons escapes and fled. Where does he go? Of all people, goes after David. Verse 21, And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priest. David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. But with me thou shalt be in safeguard. The thing that to me that I wanted to point out, and we'll, we'll close tonight. One person escapes from Nob, and it's this man, Abiathar. And the beautiful thing in this story is Abiathar's name. His name means, my father is great. My father is great. Now, in case you're wondering, he's not talking about Ahimelech. His name means my father is great. When he got that name, did God know that his father, earthly father, and all the priests and all of his family was going to be slain that day? Oh, yeah. But Abiathar looked beyond what he was in the middle of and said, no matter what I'm experiencing, my family's all gone and now I'm all alone, but my father is still great. 
the God that I serve is still great. That sounds an awful like, lot like Genesis chapter 50 when Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know where Abiathar ends up? If you follow the rest of his story and his life, you know where he ends up? In the palace. Abiathar would become the priest, the high priest for David for his entire reign and the beginning of Solomon's reign until he ran and joined Adonijah, Solomon's brother. He was the priest throughout all of David's reign, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because of his name. My father is great. No matter what I experience in this world, my father is still great. No matter what hardship and hurt that I might face, my God is still faithful. And he will take care of me no matter what. Jerry Bridges said, we must not allow our emotions to hold sway over our minds. Rather, we must seek to let the truth of God rule our minds. Our emotions must become subservient to the truth. Our emotions will lead us astray. But the truth remains the same. Our Father is still great. Father, thank you so much for who you are and what you do. Thank you for being good to us. Lord, thank you for in the challenges of our life, you are still great. Thank you for loving us, being faithful to us, even in times when we're not faithful to you. Lord, please bless us and help us to follow you faithfully as you deserve to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go.